You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. I'm Ruthie Fearberg, and this is Why We Theater. The intersection of theater and social justice, this podcast digs into today's most thought-provoking and urgent onstage works with the artists who made them and real-world experts who advise us on how we can create impactful change in our offstage lives. After all, that is Why We Theater. Today, we welcome playwright Jocelyn Bio and a panel of experts to discuss Jocelyn's School Girls or the African Mean Girls play. For those of you who haven't seen the show, a brief primer. Set in Ghana in 1986, the play follows a group of high school girls led by Queen Bee Paulina as they prepare for the Miss Ghana pageant scout to arrive. When a light-skinned girl transfers into the boarding school, she disrupts the social hierarchy a la Mean Girls, and the pageant recruiter sees this young girl as a ticket to finally get Ghana noticed at the Miss Universe pageant. Jocelyn, I want to start by talking about where the idea came from. So I know that in past interviews, you said that the play was sort of an amalgamation of three things, um, your own experience at boarding school in Hershey, Pennsylvania, Um, your mother's time at Aburi Girls Boarding School in Ghana, and the Mm -hmm. 2011 Miss Universe pageant where Miss Ghana was an American-born biracial woman and the officials claimed that her father um, was from Ghana. So I want to go from the end and say, how did you even learn about that 2011 Miss Ghana pageant? Um, I think it was actually random. I had learned of the story, um, some years after it had happened. Um, I was in a play, uh, at Soho Rap in 2014 called Nocturne. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I was on a very deep dive (laughs) of like different research about like, you know, um, of colorism, of, of, um, histories of like, uh, you know, different kinds of women living together. I was just on a very, very deep dive um, and was curious about like um, how colorism really was worked or how it was addressed in in African countries. Like, I I don't even really know. That's why I do feel like it was kind of serendipitous, you know, some sort of act of God situation. Um, that I found the article, but then I did. And, um, and it was a kind of like a TMZ, like a kind of gunny and TMZ, like, um, celebrity website or whatever that was talking about it. And I was like very curious. And then I like went down and continued to Google the story. And I wanted to find out if she had even placed, if she had won and, um, and just became really fascinated with the story. Um, and then kind of just like logged it away for a couple mm-hmm. of years. And then um, ultimately when I decided I wanted to, I got an idea for this play, I knew I could use that as like kind of a a way into the story. Mm-hmm. So then what was the, was the original idea just about girls at a boarding school? And then it was kind of attached to this pageant idea? It was really both. I knew that I always mm-hmm. wanted to write about boarding school and I was having a really hard time getting um, this other play that I had written called Nollywood Dreams. Um, I was having a really hard time getting it produced. And so... Now MCC, you guys were in rehearsal and you were scheduled and we are crossing our fingers that post shutdown, it will come back. 
because yeah, we were same. so excited to see it. But same. So you I know. Dreams. And I just thought like, huh, if I like lean into something that people, you know, kind of know or feel a little more familiar with or the kind of universality of like the high school experience, um, what would that look like? And I knew that, you know, the beauty pageant angle would be, you know, something fun. So I went a lot of different places with it initially. Uh, we used to, in the play, we used to go to the actual pageant. Um, some of the girls used to double as um, pageant contestants. Like, oh, wow. you know, it used to be a two act play. It was like a whole other thing. Oh my God. And then um, as I continued to rewrite over the years, um, I just was like, huh, I think I might be better off like whittling it down to something, you know, simpler um, in terms of like location and story and kind of truncating all of that. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's how we eventually got to the play as it exists now. So what was it about your own boarding school experience that you really wanted to highlight and incorporate that felt like ripe for a play for you? I mean, I I know obviously a lot of people who went to boarding school, but like, it's such a rare thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And especially people who can go to boarding school, who go to boarding school, excuse me, um, with a large group of like POC people. Um, Mm -hmm. My school in particular, I think um, at the time that I was there, it was about 84% or something people of color. And most of us were first generation. Um, So I had the very unique and odd experience of going to a boarding school with like a bunch of like first gen African kids, first gen um, Latina kids, Latino kids. Like it was really, it was really unique. That was kind of our joke was that like everyone had, every one of our parents had an accent, you know? Um, And I just, it was just a unique experience being able to be in a boarding, in a modern day boarding school that was not like a prep school, not for people who were, um, who come from, you know, a one percenter kind of family, Mm -hmm. our school was scholarship based. So everyone went there for free. Um, It was quite um, specific. I also just imagine like the play you could write about this multicultural boarding school and all of, I mean, what a wealth of culture to have under one roof. I feel like that's a whole separate podcast, but wow. Yeah. I mean, it was, and it was very unique. And I wanted to be able to like talk about uh, specifically like the relationships that girls have in boarding school. Like that to me was like the power dynamics and who was, you know, who was like the leader on top and um, how people kind of ruled by fear. (laughs) I'm just so fascinated because the hierarchy sounds very similar to me from, you know, a person who didn't go to boarding school. Mm -hmm. Um, Things could get very intense. I mean, relationships were very intense. Best friendships were very intense. I think that's still universal, but um, Mm -hmm. everything, you know, and, and because it was a small boarding school, everyone knew your business. This third component, like what came from your mother's story that you, other than the setting of Ghana, that you... Mm -hmm really want to make specific about your story in school girls? Well, you know, it's funny. I mean, I have a very unique relationship with my mom. Um, She's a tough lady. She's a tough Ghanaian woman. You know, she went through um, a lot to come to this country. And and she uh, also, you know, grew up uh, pretty, you know, had a very unique upbringing as well. You know, she had a very large family on both sides. 
um, on one side of her family, on her mother's side, my my maternal grandmother, um, she had 12 siblings. And then on my my maternal grandfather's side, she had close to 30, you know, um, siblings or something. He had many, many children with multiple women. So she had a very unique experience. She was just very tough. And I think that that could be misconstrued sometimes as um, mean. And, um, and I wanted to be able to like address somebody who needs to move through the world in a certain way um, and how that could be construed in a certain way and, and kind of like have this a bit of an homage to um, someone who's kind of like take no prisoners, you know, doesn't take any um, mess from anyone, um, but also has her own kind of heartbreaking story or whatever, like that kind of veneer, that kind yeah. of, you know, armor that somebody has to put on in order for people not to judge them because of where they come from um, is something very specific. And I think because we're dealing with we the, the show is set in Ghana, where everyone relatively is the same. Uh, I wanted to be able to, you know, talk about this kind of want or desire to be different. And that's where I, I spin off and make it imagine my, my imagination. That is not her story. She did not struggle with colorism. She did not, um, you know, want to, you know, you want to use or uh, bleaching cream or anything like that. But, you know, mm -hmm. I took facets of what I was inspired by with her story and that, and that particular kind of personality and, um, how to and how to infuse that into this play so yeah yeah I mean, rereading the play like part of what blew me away was how you establish this group of girls and the role of you know the role that each of them plays with you know like paulina as our queen bee and ama mm -hmm. as the smart one and you know nana as the one who like really struggles with her eating and and be paulina's bullying of her body image and then you mm -hmm. have like the two girls of Mercy and Gifty who are just like, you know, they're just those two peas in a pod. And yeah. I remember sitting in the theater, like thinking like, God, is it really the same everywhere? Like how does, <laughs> like, and I know that that was definitely part of your, your goal with it. Um, I, but that's part of it. I think is that like, you know, um, we're, we're not quite in a place yet where we're mature enough to talk about the real um, differences um, in uh, with uh, with Africa, I would say. So like, you know, even me being somebody who's first generation, I am, you know, my Ghana got their independence in 1957. And then my parents came here 10 years later, you know, and then they had, you know, my siblings and then me. So we are first generation. There's a lot of miseducation on both sides. You know, in America, they were told that one Africa is a country and mm -hmm. that it's poor and desolate and kind of, you know, just full of war, rape and AIDS and struggle and strife. Don't go over there. And in mm -hmm. the same token, you know, in, I'll speak for Ghana specifically in my particular uh, family and some friends, you know, the education about America, that it's like this a beautiful, amazing place. And, you know, every it's a land of opportunity. You get treated so well there. Everything is like amazing and whatever, whatever. And there's, there's a lot of miseducation. And I think that that's part of my goal is to kind of really show the universality of the stories mm -hmm. that um, they're not just, uh, it, we, we've all have misconceptions about both um, 
places and um, there were a lot more alike um, than not. So um, that's a really yeah. important thing for me. And I think Schoolgirls was like, I, it's not the play I thought was going to be my first play to get produced, but in hindsight, I'm actually really grateful that it was because it totally, you know, kind of, I mean, really slammed open the door um, of like who I am and what I want to write about. Um, I was going to say, it so, feels yeah, like it established the own for sure. Yeah, um, for sure. I mean, not only are you painting this familiar picture of the social hierarchy, but it's so interesting to me to hear from the beginning that the play was longer. It had so many more layers because it feels so economical. And yet we see all of these layers of the bullying, the colorism, the classicism, and you really are coming from a place of show, not tell, you know, mm -hmm. through these lines of like, you know, we're looking for the pageant for a girl. The line is girls who have a more universal and commercial look. And we mm -hmm. all suddenly know what that means. You had your own experiences of colorism if you're mm -hmm. willing to share, what did that look like in your life? And then conveying that emotion through these girls. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it, I think for me and, and, and colorism and my journey to kind of owning my um, beauty as a dark skinned woman is kind of like a lifelong journey. Mm -hmm. um, one, I really felt like I had... Um, conquered, I guess is the best word. Um, and that's why I think I was in a place to be able to write um, uh, a school girls because I, I don't know years ago, I don't even know if 10 years ago when I was just getting out of school um, that I would have felt even remotely comfortable um, kind of being that open and honest about how I felt. Um, so that was important to me. And so I think that that's partially why the, the things the play does feel more like show and tell. That's why the word colorism is not in there or classism right. or, or anything like that. I wanted people to just experience what I experienced, see how I felt for literally 30 plus years of my life. Whatever I had to offer was immediately questioned. And mm -hmm. I felt that in everything. I felt that hanging out with my girlfriends, going out, you know, in college, going out to the club and like the guys who wanted to, uh, you know, dance with my friends and never wanted to dance with me. I felt that. Mm -hmm. And, um, and when I would audition, I'm also an actor. I felt that when I would audition for stuff and makeup, like even shopping for makeup, the names of the colors, um, that I would have to, first of all, the search for makeup for my shade was like, I mean, it was like of Huckleberry Finn proportions, you know, it was like insane. And then, you know, I would find the makeup and it would have these like insane names, like, you know, um, you know, dark tar or, um, you know, deep something, you know, that like, as if you have to like dig and find this thing, you know, whatever. Yeah. If it felt like somebody had to go on a journey to even find a way to name the thing that I'm going to put on my face. And it was like, what are we talking about here? And the, so like, it all feels like maybe small things, but like when, when you're feeling that thing every single day, um, you just kind of question like, okay, am I not like beautiful? Am I not yeah. um, desired? And then I turned all of that into very self-deprecating humor of like, 
you know, oh yeah, 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 let's go, let's all go to the club. I mean, you know, I'll hold y'all drinks because you know, anybody dancing, for, you know, anybody that asked me to dance or, you know, yeah, I'll just be sitting here. I'll, I'll hold y'all coat. Like it was just yeah. an assumption before I even walked in that like, I would not be desired. I would not be, mm-hmm. you know, wanted. And so I just accepted that. Yeah. And it's important for people, you know, who look like me as I, you know, present as a white woman um, that I didn't realize until I was in college and I um, had a very dark skinned roommate because she is of Haitian descent. And it Mm -hmm. didn't occur to me until we went to the drugstore together, I think it was one time. And like I was picking up makeup and then I looked and I was like, wait, there's literally one shade for for not even for her really for black yeah, people I was like, and, yeah i was like there likely wasn't even matched her skin yeah right so it's important for all people to recognize like this is these are the many things that you're not even thinking about that contribute to the problem and this conception um I mean, I have to admit that like, so when the, when Erica, the character who um, is light skinned, comes mm-hmm. from America, um, moves to Ghana to be with her father, um, mm-hmm. I have to admit, I was surprised that she wasn't seen as an outsider or like not, quote, black enough in a world of such dark skinned women. Well, I mean, she is really, she's accepted by everybody really, except, you know, Paulina. Um, Everyone else is kind of immediately drawn to her and, you know, is excited by her in the same way that Paulina can't help what she looks like, neither can Erica. And like, that's Mm -hmm. part of it. That's why there's really no, at the end of the play, there's really no like solution where I'm like, hey, here's how colorism gets solved. Like, I have no idea, you know, other than people recognizing it. I think the moment Erica walks onto the stage, she is an example, at least in this moment, of privilege. Like, we just, Mm -hmm. even you hear it in the audience, like, as soon as they would, even if you were somebody who was white, you know, and didn't understand what colorism even was, as soon as they saw Erica walk on, they all would make, uh, have a reaction. And I'm like, that is it. That is it. What it forces us acknowledge exactly ourselves. exactly mm-hmm. exactly and I mean I had I mean there were I mean I was fascinated to learn about like you know uh there was an older Jewish woman who came up to me and said you know she grew up in a neighborhood where she was like one of the only Jewish people and she had very dark hair and olive skin um and she felt like an outcast amongst a sea of like blonde blue-eyed girls that you know she went to school with or whatever mm-hmm. um I saw that a lot with a lot of um Asian American um friends who came and and they were like, please, bleach and cream and, you know, in Korea, in China and wherever, um, in India, like it's, it's mm-hmm. everywhere. It's everywhere. Not that I didn't know, but like just to see that there was such a connection. If you could think of one question that you were hoping audiences would leave pondering, what was the question you were hoping they would examine? Um, what implicit biases do I have? And how can I actively change them? Well, Mm -hmm. that's exactly what I left thinking about, um, among many other things. But Mm -hmm. it is the reason why I wanted to have this discussion and the reason why I would like to welcome in our other two guests, um, Afia Ofori Mensa, 
who is the director of the Presidential Scholars Program at Princeton and is a researcher who specializes, this is so perfect, I can't even believe we found her, in 20th to 21st century pop culture, specifically beauty pageantry. Wow. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. And um, Marianne Jacob Macias, did I say your last name right? Did I accent it correctly? Exactly right. Which almost yes. never happens. <laughs> is the um, senior director at National Crittenton, which is an organization that specializes in creating actual social change and systems change when it comes to self-esteem in young girls and young women or women of every age. So thank you so much for being here as well. Pleasure. So, um, you know, while Jocelyn has addressed all of these um, layers of multiple issues, and we're going to focus this part of the conversation on how beauty ideals evolve, um, how colorism plays into those ideals, and then how the beauty ideals affect and relate to self-esteem. So, Afia, I want to start with you. Um, given your research and your incredible expertise, I want to start with like, what do you think of pageantry? What is it important for the average person to know about pageantry? Because I think there are different reasons that, you know, as Jocelyn's characters like Paulina and Erica have different reasons for even getting near it. I think one of the most important things that I've learned about pageantry over time, and this used to come up in the classes that I would teach about beauty pageants to college students, is I would have them like design a beauty pageant at the end of the semester as their final project. And a lot of times a question that arose was what is really the difference between let's say a fashion show and a beauty pageant? Like what, what, like if you're creating a beauty pageant, what is it really that you're creating? Like what's at the heart of it? And I think one of the most important distinctions between pageantry and other forms of popular culture that focus on, on beauty is that pageantry is always about selecting a single individual to represent a group of people. And I think the more heterogeneous that group, the more contested the, the pageant, the results, the person who wins can, can end up being. And it's in those contests and those disagreements and those disruptions and the moments when something happens that people aren't expecting um, that I think we learn the most about what people in the group or outside of the group um, think of as authentic membership in that group, whatever it is. Yeah. So if you're talking about a national pageant like Miss Ghana, I think, you know, what the play brings out so clearly is like, okay, then like who really, Erica's a knockoff, right? Says Paulina. Mm-hmm. Point, mm-hmm. Right? You're not, you're not a real Ghanaian. Um, you're like the Calvin Klein, but then meanwhile, um, Eloise is like, this is who's going to win because at the end of the day, she doesn't have to represent the nation. She's got to represent the nation at an international competition that, um, you know, I, I imagine Jocelyn was modeled after Miss Universe, which yeah. is headquartered in the U.S. Yeah. Um, and that means that the the standards of beauty are also headquartered in the U.S., you know, for, mm-hmm. in a manner of speaking. Right, that it matters where the, where the pageant originates, who the sponsors are, 
what products they're trying to sell to what people that really ends up casting who the quote winner is. Right. Because it's not just the kind of like idealistic representation of the nation. It's also, like you said, it's like, okay, if, you know, this is our sponsor this year, um, we've got to make sure that whoever we choose is going to sell their products in the way that they're satisfied with so that they will continue to sponsor us, you know, so that they will continue to invest money into this enterprise. And so you have those various kinds of interests at play. On one hand, um, you know, who is an authentic representative of Ghana? And then on the other hand, who's going to go on and potentially be competitive in this other contest that has nothing to do with Ghanaian standards of beauty or anything. Right, and put Ghana on the world stage. Yeah, and then yeah. who's going to sell the products that the sponsors are trying to sell and satisfy that aspect of things as well. And so, I mean, I've mentioned this to all of you that um, I... In my senior year at Barnard, I took a cultural anthropology class, and I have apparently been very interested in beauty ideals for a long time because that was my thesis paper for this seminar, was I was looking at different beauty ideals in different cultures. And I mean, particularly among women, there are different practices everywhere, whether it was, you know, foot binding in China or um, neck lengthening that... um, you know, women were getting butt implants in certain South American countries because voluptuousness was valued there, that there were all these different standards of beauty. And I don't think we've gotten to a place where that has completely disappeared. But I do think it seems that we, that it has moved to this light skinned Western European ideal. And I'm wondering, like, historically, Afia, like, how does, how does it happen? Is it just because, like you're saying, these big pageants are U.S.-based or is there, are there other things at work as well? I think it's not only pageants that are U.S.-based. Hollywood is U.S.-based. You know, I think um, one of the things, Jocelyn, that you illustrate really well in your play is, like, they're talking about Bobby Brown and they're singing Whitney Houston's song. The, so much of the pop culture that people um, receive and interact with around the world comes from only a, a small number of places. Mm-hmm. And the U.S. is a huge producer of popular culture that gets exported to other countries. And that yeah. means that the kinds of ideals, the kinds of standards, the kinds of norms that circulate in U.S. pop culture um, that are, you know, troubling for those of us in the U.S. a lot of times, even especially mm-hmm. in color. Um, then just get exported to other countries. And then that, you know, that that settles in because the, the images that we see every day have a real power over yeah. what we understand the world to be, over what we understand normalcy to be, over what we think we should look like, you know? Like we look at images of other people a lot of times more often than we look at our own faces mm. during the day. Um, and so that then yeah. becomes kind of reality of what we yeah. think we ought to be. So Marianne, is that is that where the connection between beauty and self-esteem sort of lies? And is that the crux of it? Is that this comparison and that we're trying to aspire to the things that we're seeing and then we're feeling like we're not meeting that, therefore the self-esteem suffers? I mean, I think that's always there for women and girls. I think those... Um, those conflicting messages are so ubiquitous for us at such a young age. Um, you know, stand up for yourself, feel good about yourself. Um, don't be, um, don't be conceited. You know, we're always hearing mixed messages on how we should behave, how we should present. 
Um, mm-hmm. And I have to say, my middle school self is so triggered by this conversation right now, but that's good. <laughs> she needs to come out. <laughs> oh my God. Um, Seriously. But you know what I find so interesting and probably so obvious to everyone on this um, on, around this conversation is that, of course, this topic um, appeal. Um, is one that it, that girls and women specifically are dealing with, right? Men and boys are not dealing as much with with this issue. So it's what I call yes. the relentless expectations of women and girls. You know, mm. it's like we can, like we never get it right. There's an endless barrage of what we should and shouldn't be doing. And yeah, so you were going to say something, Ruthie? I was going to say, I mean, then that brings up the question of like, why? Yeah, is it's that so arbitrary. Is that because of just like, I mean, history of women not being earners and their only way to make money is marriage? Like, is that just like the the inherent inferiority of women throughout history that then we capture the one tool that is ours, which is beauty? I mean, I think it's looking at who the decision makers are, who holds power, you know, who's making the decisions that impact our lives and the lives of girls. It's not us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And it's a really persistent and enduring form of sexism and subjugation of women and girls that, um, you know, there's this um, scholar, Susan Bordeaux, I read something by her in grad school that just stuck with me forever because she pointed out that at the moments when we start to see significant shifts in gendered power, like, bam, right there comes something that refocuses women's energies and attentions on their own appearance and on competing with one another for the attentions of men. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, you know, so like, you know, 1920, we're, we're now at the, you know, the anniversary of the 19th amendment, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. only months later, the first Miss America pageant happened at like, say, you know, like within the same year. Oh my <laughs> God. That's wild. Yeah. And then grew to be this phenomenon where, you know, like quite literally women were presenting themselves for the judgment of men. Mm-hmm. Right at the moment when nationally they had gotten the the right to vote, you know, they had won that that's very so long fight. Fascinating. That it's wow. the that's the gut punch reaction to it. You know, it just continues today, over and over again. Yeah, Jocelyn, you were going to say. I was going to say that that's also part of the reason why there's no men in in the play. Um, they're they're not necessary. They're not needed, but they're kind of like this kind of omnipresent, you know, uh, thing in the play. Like there's, they're discussing boys they're discussing, um, you know, how to look good for them and, um, you know, who has the cuter boyfriend and, you know, whatever, like this, there's still a symbol of something, you know, um, and it was just not necessary to even be in the play because I'm like, we, as, as you see, the power of it didn't even lie at all in some man coming in and judging. It was like this patriarchal thing that we as women understand inherently um, yes. that when we are in front of men or, you know, what that our attraction is bound in what some man somewhere decided to yeah. create. <laughs> You know, that this is the, he, he, he deemed it so that this is the standard of beauty. And if no one looks like said person, then we've, we've got an issue, you know, mm-hmm. and, and how that has now filtered all the way down, obviously into present day, but certainly into these girls in 1986 in the mountains in Ghana, um, it's super present in a way that is really frightening. 
Yeah. And I think one of the things that comes up, I think the moment that I feel the most sadness for Eloise, that character in particular, is when she says, I'm just trying to win. Mm-hmm. There has never been a woman who's been the head of the Miss Ghana pageant. And I'm trying mm-hmm. to be that woman, finally. You know, like mm-hmm. that was a really important time for me. That's mm-hmm. where it becomes really obvious that, like, really, we are subjecting these women to the judgment of the men who own the pad- the pageants, the men who serve as the judges, the men who, you mm-hmm. know, who, as you point out, aren't even there. They don't have to be in the frame. Yeah. Really, that kind of power. Yeah. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. But that also, it just begs the question to me in general, like, what is beauty? And I don't even mean like, oh, there's beauty on the inside and beauty on the outside. I mean, what (laughs) is external beauty? Because it is always like now we're sort of seeing these campaigns of, you know, the Dove Beauty campaign or like Aerie, which is, um, you know, the underwear from American Eagle, like they're doing, quote, real body campaigns and things like that. (laughs) Like all in this effort to say, like, everything is beautiful. And, and like, on the one hand, I'm like, yes, everything is beautiful. And then on the other hand, I'm like, why do we need everything to be labeled with the word beautiful? Like, what does it mean? Who are we trying to satisfy? What are we trying to feel with that word? I think one of the things that I found that that actually is the scariest to me is how many times beauty stands in for humanity and Mm. how many times beauty stands in for um, value of all kinds. In what way? I was reading the other day a very sad news story about um, a 13-year-old Latina girl who took her own life some years ago and um, was suffering a lot under bullying at her middle school, at her middle school. Mm-hmm. Um, of other other children calling her ugly. Mm-hmm. And in the suicide note that she wrote at the age of 13 to her parents, she said that um, she didn't want her casket to be open because she didn't want anyone to see her at her funeral <sighs> because she was just, and she apologized to her parents for being so ugly. And it was a moment in which it like, it made it really clear to me that there's like a one-to-one correlation in that case of like who's beautiful and who deserves to live, you know, mm-hmm. and who doesn't. That I think that's part of the reason that's so important is because it's a it's a form of value that we attach to things that suggest that that thing deserves to even be in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just heard this morning on um, I don't know if any of you listened to What a Day, the podcast from Crooked, that TikTok had been filtering and banning people who were deemed quote ugly or differently bodied and like just not like pushing their videos to the top. They were pushing quote pretty people's videos to the top. But um like with, on TikTok, how can you even like everyone's TikTok. moving and dancing too fast for you to even <laughs> <laughs> I mean but this is the prevalence of it, right? And I mean the thing that you bring up a fear with that 
and with that really terrible story is is the bullying aspect of this Mm -hmm. and like the social hierarchy jocelyn that you have painted into this is so familiar to every single one of us that i'm like what is it about the way that we culture girls that we do this i remember the shift happening in the third grade and i remember then teaching dance class and i would teach second graders and then i would move up with them and they were different humans in the third grade. Like, what is it, maybe Marianne, you can speak to this, that's happening that that this is among girls and that this is not a thing that boys do, even behaviorally, put beauty aside. Um, I, I mean, I've thought about this a lot since I was 11 or 12 years old. And I think yeah. it's taken me this long to realize that I felt so powerless at times Um, and still often do now, just in the larger scheme of things. And I think um, power and holding power is just a big part of it. Girls and women have so little power. And what we have, we just desperately hang on to. And sometimes, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. maybe that means we wield it against one another. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what do we need to do to... Because I feel like it starts in the third grade and then that behavior becomes habituated and we just keep doing it until we finally hit, I don't know, 25 and realize what have I been doing for 22 years? Like, What do we need to do? What's maybe something that Crittenton is doing to stop it from the beginning and not even start the cycle? I mean, I think it's, so it's, I think it's social change. So it's, lifting up all of the wonderful, amazing things that girls and women of color do around Mm -hmm. the world every single day um, that so few people are, I think, are paying attention to. Um, And so if you see that as a young, say, eight-year-old girl, you see women uplifting other women, you learn that you, that's a behavior to mimic. I mean, I think girls, you know, there are girls all around the world doing incredible, wonderful, amazing things. And, you know, if we can focus on that a little bit more than um, other toxic things, um, I think that'll make a huge difference in the conversation. Um, It's, you know, it's a movement, it's movement building. And I, um, you know, I mean, I... I'd, I'd go onto Facebook because I feel like I have to, but when I do, you know, I'm 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 really just looking for these young activists around the world, you know, climate change activists, racial justice activists, gender equity activists, and you know, I I just think about who I was at that age and just how fearful I was at that age of speaking up about anything. So that just makes me realize how far we've come, and yet, you know their power is still so concentrated in their own hands. And um, I would really love to see these young girls lead, girls and young women, I should say, lead and be in those decision-making positions. Yeah. I mean, it seems sometimes like men came with a different handbook as boys than girls do. Like I was at Women's Day on Broadway and uh, who was it? It was Shelly Williams, who is um, a black director who was, mm-hmm. he was started out as a performer. I mean, she's the best, right? Yeah, Ugh, I love great. that one. And she was telling mm-hmm. the story about how when Aida closed on Broadway, 
Um, she was at the closing night party and her music director, Stephen Aremus said to her, you know, and a group of people, what do y'all want to do now? And she said, well, I actually kind of want to direct, but I don't really know how to get into that. And he said, you're at an industry party, do the Joe Mantello and tell everyone that you're a director. And she looked at him like, is that like, just tell them I'm a director. And he was like, say you are the thing you want to be. And she looked at him and said, is that what men do? And he said, of course. And I just, <laughs> and the, all of the women in the room were like in shock and laughing hysterically. And all of the men were like, yeah, obviously. Like, where does, like, how do we, I don't want to necessarily advocate for women, like being quote more like men, because I think there are beautiful things in the differences, but how do we have that more unlimited mindset? Question to the um, room. Yeah, it's a big question. Um, I, one, I'm, one, I think I'm still figuring out for myself, likely. Um, but I think it's, it's also uh, probably knowing and understanding that you have that um, that power and that authority. I mean, had he not said that to Shelly in that moment, she didn't know she had it. Now she knows she has it. And how can she empower mm -hmm. other people to, you know, um, utilize it um, as well? Um, I mean, I guess that's one way. I, 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 yeah. I don't know. I think it's a constant, uh, you know, navigation and, and I don't want to say struggle, but uh, that is, certainly a word that it's, you know, uh, feeling like it's right at the tip of my tongue. So yeah. I don't know, I guess it's acknowledging and understanding that there is a power that you have um, and utilizing that as best you can in a non-mean way. <laughs> and I think knowing that that possibility, not even just the power, but the possibility to do that exists. Until yeah. you tell me that story, Ruthie, I would never have thought of that. Who <laughs> like, would have that idea? I wouldn't, you know? So like, Somebody's got to tell me the story for me mm -hmm. to know that there's even a possibility of something mm -hmm. yeah. that I can do in my life. And then I think the other side of that is that we've got to start from a very early age, um, you know, just encouraging um, girls and women and femmes to like um, to embrace that kind of behavior. So mm -hmm. like I think one of the, the things that happens very frequently, but very subtly is that we have different ways that we treat children whom we think of as girls versus children whom we think of as boys. Yes. And that comes up in all kinds of moments. Like, you know, maybe a little girl says, I'm a director. And then somebody <laughs> else says, you're not a director, you know, and then she like learns that you're not supposed right. to proclaim yourself something that you are. Well, then why would you ever as an, as an adult make that kind of move at an industry party? It's like lying. And yeah. lying, you know, and then lying is thought of as something that's improper and it's, you know, it's not right to do is it's amoral. And, and then she doesn't want to engage in it because she wants to be right and she wants to be good and all these other kinds of things. And so I think that like starting from a very young age, just catching ourselves as we interact with children and thinking about what are the kinds of things that we tend to praise and what are the kinds of things that we tend to punish even subtly and being really, really aware of that. And, and at our, us as adults changing our behavior and our approach to those things so that children don't pick up those kinds of messages for 30 years or longer that you yeah. are, you're, if you are this kind of person, you're supposed to act this way. If you are that kind of person, you're not. Yeah. I mean, we're all in agreement, but I see Marianne, like you are 
it's like in your body. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, and I would add to that also in a, in an age appropriate way saying to, to, to girls and young women and um, them presenting people that young people that folks will try to silence you. People Mm -hmm. will tell you that you don't belong here Mm -hmm. and you know, you do, you have a space here, you have a place here, you belong. And I think it's just constant reiteration of that. I also down to our teachers a lot of the time, because I remember um, I had not intended to go to a women's college like Barnard. um, And I remember being in on those info sessions uh, when I was thinking about Barnard and, you know, the, like the crowd claim there was, um, your daughter is not going to be afraid to raise her hand in class. And I thought to myself, who is afraid to raise their hand in class? Mm-hmm. So that concept was mind blowing to me because I had always been outspoken. I had always been eager to speak. I had always been called on. I, and I think I had a fair amount of female teachers growing up, but I also just had teachers who were calling on me and who were encouraging everyone to be to be called on. So that was actually cultivated in me. And it wasn't until I got to Barnard that I kind of learned like, oh, the world will try and silence me, I guess. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> now, I mean, I'm definitely experiencing that reality um, from time to time, but that I think that maybe our, our teachers and our, uh, you know, choir directors and our athletic coaches and those people, mm-hmm. like you're saying, like not even forcing you to claim your space, but giving you space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's incredibly important. I have a tremendous amount of respect for educators at the K-12 level, especially because they just spend more time. I mean, I think as a lot of people are seeing now in this current moment, <laughs> teachers spend more waking hours with children in a lot of cases oh than anything else in the world. Yeah. Um, and so they, you know, they have a lot of power, but I think also other people, you know, other people do too. Cultural producers do too. You know, right. like yeah. when I was growing up, I wanted to be an actor, but there weren't any parts for like you were saying before, Justin. There weren't parts for dark skin black mm-hmm. actors. So, like as a middle school and high school student in community theater, I was playing Tachuba and the Crucible and Viney and the Miracle Worker and the you know and like always the maid of some kind, you know. Yeah. Middle schooler even, and I was like, well, there it doesn't seem to be much out here for me. And I would watch movies and television, and there just weren't um, there just weren't dark skinned black women other than Whoopi. Until mm-hmm. Lupita came along and Denai came along, and you know we ha- we're in a different landscape now. And now there are things that I see come like coming before me every day that help me to realize that that's another possibility. I think it's the thing about possibility again. You know, yeah. like yeah. more of this kind mm-hmm. of work that people do, the more of all different kinds of work that women and girls and femmes do, that's publicized, that's like out there, that's visible to people the more that women and girls and femmes believe that they can do that thing, you know, mm-hmm. access to totally. they have. Totally, I mean, totally. What we've been talking about a bit is like the thing that all girls and, you know, and women experience no matter their color, but obviously, you know, with women of color, that changes. And as Jocelyn was speaking to earlier, being dark skinned versus, you know, exactly what the play is about. And I don't want to ignore that piece of colorism. And I, I need to say like how, um, 
powerful in the most devastating way it was to watch Paulina using these bleach creams. Like I had no idea about the world of bleach creams. And I even started doing, I did a little bit of research and I found out that in a study from May, 2019 in Ghana, um, done with university students, 40.9% had practiced skin bleaching in the past 12 months. And that was so wild to me. And that 51% of those, of that 40% was using it to quote, treat a skin disorder. But the fact that like people think that bleaching creams help skin disorders or that's what they represent. And I'm just wondering like, was bleaching a part of the conversation when you were when you were younger? Is it a part of the conversation now? Do you know people who do it? Did you ever consider doing it? If you are willing to share that. It's a worldwide thing. Like it's a worldwide um, thing that people don't actually see as like something that's bad, you know, Um, Mm -hmm. until someone tells you that is bad or until you like injure yourself and harm yourself, um, which is what I I wanted to illustrate in the play. Like that is kind of then when you, you know, have to make a decision about whether you want to keep moving forward or not. But like, it's it's bleaching is considered something as casual as going shopping for makeup or you know women trading secret you know beauty secrets about you know what's a better product or what's not um and it is supposed to be used for like spot you know spot treatment um but when folks had you know discover that like oh it can actually be something that really you know changes my appearance in a way that might make me look more um appealing uh, that then becomes an issue. Yeah. I um, had, um, when I was younger, I did have like some dark spots and I did, uh, and I was given uh, bleach and cream mm-hmm. and um, used it for the spot treatment. I never was using it to like, you know, bleach, like actually bleach my skin. There's actually no way I would have been able to even successfully do that with that little bottle. So I, I think that's possibly why I was like, you know, it is what it is. Um, clarification is not, you're not intending to make your skin tone lighter. No, but it okay. didn't mean, but I mean, we, there was just not enough for me to, you know, but like, it didn't mean right. that I didn't think or dream or have fantasies about like, well, if this could work, you know, if yeah. it could, you know, like what would happen then? Mm-hmm. Um, so there is a real casualness about the way, you know, bleaching cream is used um, and how people use it. That is, that also, you know, is unfortunate, but um makes it a thing where like people don't actually think it's as bad as it actually, you know, is. And um, yeah, for someone like Paulina's character, especially being, you know, 17, 18 year old, you know, girl to actually be going to it, to use it as something that she thinks is going to actually change her life and, and really change her appearance um, is something that's really sad. And I wanted to be able to illustrate that. um, Yeah. that even, you know, Paulina is, is poor, her family's poor. And that with even our little bit of money, my mother gave me bleaching cream instead of food, because that would quote, serve me better in life. Mm-hmm. The world has already decided, she says to Erica, you are better than me. And that's unfortunately a truism about life, about her specific 
you know, uh, the way beauty has been portrayed to her that she has discovered is a truism of life. And like, that is, I think the unfortunate thing. We know that that's not true. You know, she will hopefully eventually know that that's not true, but that is her truth in that moment, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and is it, um, and it, it's kind of like, it was like a double edged, like writing that it's like, how extreme did I want to go with all of this? But I think it was important to like really illustrate someone's really deep, dark, sad thoughts when it comes to something like this. And if there's ever going to be a moment, she would say that it would just be in this moment. And that's why for really the rest of the play, we kind of, that's like the deepest and darkest we can go. And then we, we pull back out, out of that. What we really want is for that to not be the goal anymore. And I think that it's, that what is, what are your proposals, thoughts, hopes of how we widen the spectrum of what is considered beautiful? What demands do we make and of whom do we make them? There are two big ones that I think of. I think one is, um, one is just get more, different kinds of images out there mm-hmm. like we consume all kinds of media and um you know those media instruct how we see ourselves and how we see the world and i think the more variety there is to that um the more we have choices that we can make that we want to mm-hmm. model ourselves after this one and not that one you know mm-hmm. like if you were like me growing up in the 80s and there's only one dark-skinned Black woman on in movies or on TV, then you don't have a whole lot of choices about who you want to model yourself after mm-hmm. that, right. that are realistic, you know? And so I think the more we can kind of broaden the spectrum of, of images that we trade in, um, the more choices everybody will have. And then there was another thing that um, there's a... I, I read an article once, but I think it was Peggy Ornstein who um, did all this kind of research on on girlhood and beauty. And one of the things that she said she noticed at a certain point is she started observing that when, when she and other people um, encountered a little girl, right away they would say something about her appearance. You look so pretty. Yeah. I love your purple tutu. Mm-hmm. Look at those mm-hmm. today. You know, all this kind of stuff. Um, with a boy, they wouldn't do that. They, they wouldn't say, look at them jeans. they would they would wait for the boy to do something and then they would compliment him on that Mm -hmm. and I learned so much just reading that and I noticed that I did the same thing Mm -hmm. and so now I try to be really intentional like wait for the kid to do something yeah and compliment them on their skill and their abilities. I even do that with baby photos now. As my friends like send me like their newborn photos, I am so conscious not to be like, oh my God, they're gorgeous. I say something like they look so healthy or like if the baby's looking like they look animated. They look engaged. I'm like starting from the earliest possible moment. <laughs> I know. I'm always like, look at your baby. It has such a steady gaze. That's so impressive. <laughs> <laughs> but like, you know, I think the goal is too, that like, you, you, as you were saying that there was this one image of a black woman and then you kind of aspire to that, that we get into this place where, you know, I want to live in a world where we can praise natural hair and treated hair, if that's what you want to have, where we can praise mm-hmm. voluptuous women and twiggy women, where we can have dark skin and light skin, and that you can just 
that you can just be. And I'm wondering, like, do we think so in terms of these images and in terms of these um like the widening of the spectrum and the hopes for what we want to accomplish, are we writing to magazines and saying, you know, are we tweeting to magazines and saying incorporate more? Are we speaking with our wallets and only buying the foundation that has a full spectrum on the shelf? And if you don't have a spectrum, I'm not buying from you. Like, is it, is it money? Is it petitioning? Is it tweeting? Like, what's the most effective, tangible thing that listeners can do to start to move this needle? I mean, I think it's all of that. You know, I think mm-hmm. it's our power as consumers um, in terms of representation. I would say, you know, publishers, right? I mean, children's books, like the books that are in um, classrooms and in libraries, you know, um, yeah. in, in bookstores, which books are front and center when you first walk in? Yeah, Marianne, I saw that you tweeted that um, article about, what was it, that uh, like children's books with black characters are not just for black children? Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. That's, that, that would be huge, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> like even just that alone, yeah. <laughs> would be something really amazing for, you know, if some, you know, young white child is reading Solway, you know, Um, and, and, and how that they too can like have an early education about um, what they, what their implicit bias of beauty is as well. You know, Um, that kind of education doesn't, shouldn't just stem or be on you know, why does it need to be on the, the, the oppressed shoulders to then also educate on, you know, um, uh, opening up the the ideas of beauty? Like that's, um, it's problematic, but it, it's, it's also, yeah, it's also something that just needs to be said and addressed. Yeah. Um, I also think to answer your question, Ruthie, too, um, is just also like, widening people's under widening people's understandings of like what um beauty is the thing about children is that they're also so open to like everything mm-hmm. so if like they were told that every single thing that they're looking at is beautiful and amazing and like and 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 that adults or parents or teachers whomever you know were actually having more of an awareness of what they're saying when when children are around they they absorb everything they absorb everything yeah. and that um i mean in particular with children i think it's something that we can we can start fresh maybe with these people who are running these multi-million dollar companies that you know are only de- have decided to only push out one standard of beauty like i don't know how we can take them to task where it hurts them the most which is their money but you know in terms of like raising up another generation it's about us really you know widening their understanding you know at the end of the play um you know, the girls are all watching, you know, the beauty pageant. And at the end of the play, the, you know, they turn up the TV and the announcer saying like, you know, and here are the like, you know, most beautiful women in the world. And even though that's what the girls are watching, the audience who's sitting in in the theater is watching them. And like, 
And when they walk out of that theater, like all of these people now have now have a different understanding or appreciation for the beauty of these girls, because over the course of 75 minutes, they got to know them and love them Mm -hmm. for who they are. And that's why they're beautiful. And so if those kinds of things can somehow manifest into people in some sort of way, um, it would really be um, an amazing education for everybody. So, you know, here's hoping. Yeah, I think that's part of the answer to Ruthie that like, I don't know, it's like, this is like a version of a question of a bigger question that I talk to my students about all the time. We're talking about social justice and like we see injustices in the world and what do we do? You know, there's inequality and there's oppression and what can we do? And what I've been saying for the past few years is just find the part that you care about, like find Mm -hmm. the thing that you love to do and do that thing in the service of social justice, you know, each act write, run nonprofits, make media, tweet, you know, like whatever your thing, raise children, whatever your thing is, just do that thing in the service of working against injustice. Because I think everybody has a role to play. Yeah. And it's really about like, where's, you know, where's your own brilliance? Um, and where's your own passion? And how can, how can we all put that together toward yeah. the kinds of changes that you're talking about? Well, it's definitely, I mean, from seeing this play and from rereading it and just thinking about it, it is the kind of thing that I walk out of theater going, okay, what is what is the thing I can do? So I think that from this conversation, it is, it is thinking about the shades on the makeup counter. It is thinking about how your dark friend feels when you go out together and making sure that they're fully incorporated into a group. It's thinking about when I talk to little girls and making sure, like you're saying, like we're not just complimenting their appearance, but also making sure that like when you see two girls fighting, you say, "Uh uh-uh, like we don't, you know, this power dynamic that we were talking about, that there are all these little ways that the same way you want to tweet when there's no representation, maybe you should tweet in praise when there is. So that Mm -hmm. we are... Also, we're not just, pun, you know, punishing, so punishing can be necessary, but we're also positively reinforcing to put it in a like mm-hmm. psychology majors. Term. Yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> um, well, we will leave our listeners with that. And with that, I thank each of you so much for being part of this incredible conversation. You are each such impressive women. And I encourage everyone to continue to follow each of your work be it on the stage, your book that's coming out, Afia, Marianne, your social justice change through National Crittenton that's happening. So thank you all so much. We really appreciate thank it. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Why We Theater is a product of the Broadway Podcast Network. It's edited and mixed by Derek Gunther. If you like the show, subscribe at bpn.fm slash WWT or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review and tell your friends. Our theme music is by Benjamin Velez. Why We Theater is recorded in part on the traditional lands of the Wappinger and Lenape peoples. I acknowledge this land was unjustly taken from them and pay my respect to elders both past and present. Special thanks to Dory Berenstein, Alan Seals, Lee Silverman, Patrick Taylor, Tony Montaneri, Wesley Birdsall, Elena Mayer, and Suzanne Chipkin. 
For more resources for change, info about our guests, and more, visit us at whywetheater.com. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.